Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Glory America, Bonjour, hi Canada, I'm Hugh Hewitt, that music means the Hillsdale Dialogue has arrived and I'm getting lots of notes from you folks who love the history of the English speaking people and Winston Churchill's authorship of it and we are spending many weeks in it, one week per book and there are a grand total of 12 books in the history of the English speaking people divided among four volumes, we're in volume two, book six, Restoration to Revolution, Dr. Larry Arn is president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. You know, a couple of months ago, my friends from Salem went up to your campus, Dr. Arn. They saw you uh, uh, doing the Inquisition thing at lunch with some of your students, and they were amused by that. And they loved your campus, but they remarked they expected everyone to be in blue blazers with a seal, and that wasn't the case. I said, no, Hillsdale is quite the normal place except for the classroom. Do you find that odd that they were surprised? Well, I, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I, this... Uh, our particular way of trying to do it, it has something to do with me, is we want people to be at home here. And so they have to act properly, and they're tidy, you know. Uh, but, you know, we don't try to exercise petty tyrannies over them. Uh, we get them to agree to a grand tyranny before they come. That is, say, we're going to do this, and if you don't want to do this, go somewhere else. But then we all get here and we do it. And we can be trusted to do it. If you are going to apply to Hillsdale, you are late in the game. Not too late for 2023, but you ought to be applying right now. Get your application at hillsdale.edu. Back to our study of English history and the history of the English-speaking people. It's much more than English history. There's a name that I always forget till I reread this book, George Monk. And General Monk was a soldier. He fought for Charles. He trained as a mercenary. Then he fought for the Roundheads. And I love that what Churchill says, which speaks to the English people, and might speak to Penny Arn as well. Monk was one of those Englishmen who understand to perfection the use of time and circumstances. It is a type which has thriven on our island. The English are apt to admire men who do not attempt to dominate events or turn the drift of fate, who wait about doing their duty on a short view from day to day until there is no doubt whether the tide is in or the ebb or the flow, and who then, with the appearance of great propriety and complete self-abnegation, with steady sterling qualities of conduct, if not of heart, move slowly, cautiously forward towards the obvious purpose of the nation. This is Monk bringing back Charles II. Um, it's quite the tribute, Dr. Arndt. Yeah, and uh, he, he, he was, it's interesting how he was able to do that. He was the greatest and most lethal soldier. Yes. Which means he could have taken Cromwell's place. Yes. And he didn't. And, and, the way was better prepared for him, because, you know, there's a lot of evidence that Cromwell, you know, didn't, he refused to be the king. Uh, but he became the Lord Protector, right? And his son succeeded him, and his son was useless at that and admitted it. And so Monk has to keep things together. And then he, he's now, in a, because there's been enough experience now to invite the king back. And, you know, uh, everybody's learned a lot by now. 
And so there's all kinds of things that uh, that the restored king doesn't do that his father did do, although his son is not so wise. And no. uh, so they're still, they're in the middle, all of these are episodes in the middle of establishing the British Constitution as it operated at its peak. And that is to say, the parliament is supreme, the king reigns but doesn't rule, uh, it is a system of government by, by consent, and what's lost today is government by consent requires few and simple laws. And we're way beyond that now. You know what is hopeful for Americans, though, about this particular chapter, page 325? It was most plainly the wish of the people that the king should, quote, enjoy his own again, close quote. This is after Cromwell has triumphed, after Cromwell has butchered, after Charles I has lost his head. It's after, you know, a decade and a half of the protectorate. And yet the memory lingers of what they like. And they like the king. I think that has a lesson for America as well. We, we have a residual attachment to being left alone, Dr. Arne, which I think is going to be much in evidence in the years ahead. Leave to live by no man's leave beneath the law. That's a favorite expression of Churchill. It's a Whig expression. And he adopted it for his own. And, that you know, that's... And see, like, Elizabeth, you know, when people became a political threat, she could kill them. She did. But what she thought was, we need a settlement on this religious stuff so everybody can worship peacefully. And, and the same thing with uh, Monk, and the same thing with, uh, you know, Cromwell, by the way, was not a religious tyrant. Uh, and so it's the danger of that that led to the rebellions against the king. But he was impatient with legislators. Yeah. On a couple of occasions, he, you know, he bar- black rod and all that stuff. You know, I, I love this stuff because now I know why the the members from the city are seated first because they protected Pym. There's stuff in here that I never remember to remember until I read it. But eventually, Parliament overcomes everybody. Yeah, yeah, and then the bureaucracy is overcoming the Parliament. Uh, but because see, uh, human affairs are fluid and. What constitutions do, by the way, which comes from a word that means to set something up firmly in place, is that they're there to remind us when we go wrong. And we're always going wrong. But they're always there, at least one praise they are. Um, when, when Monk greeted Charles in Dover in 1660, uh, a myth grows up that Charles II is the Merry Monarch and only the Merry Monarch. And he is lascivious, right? He's got mistresses everywhere. He's got, he has absolutely no attachment to anything except one big thing. He believes in hereditary monarchy. Do you have any explanation for that? Because it, it could have, James and he could have ruled without another, the glorious revolution, if they'd just given in a little bit. Yeah, well, there, you know, uh, that means that he was a lower human type than his father or his son. He was, you know, uh, if you think of having power and you think of it uh, as its benefits, prime among them being indulgences of the flesh, then, especially when you're not a young man anymore, well, that's a corruption. And, it, you know, Henry VIII had some of that. And that'll lead you astray, right? But 
what it meant in the case of Charles II was he wasn't a serious man in yes. the way of some of the others. Yes, and people people figure that out. I mean, oh, yeah. that's not that's not uh, something that's lost on them. I want to close this segment by saying, thus from the Restoration there emerged no national settlement, but rather two Englands, each with its own different background, interest, culture, and outlook. The court party and the country party. The Tories and the Whigs. You agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and see, Churchill is tracing now. Uh, Chir- Churchill is a Whig Tory. Uh, he, says, <laughs> he, he says once, I am what I've always been. A Tory Democrat on the eve of him coming back to the Conservative Party in 1923, and uh, you know he he went and joined the Liberals for a long time, and he joined he joined the Liberals and he came back to the Conservatives for the same reason. Actually, he thought that they were pursuing policies that would lead to class differences that would play into socialism. And to understand the career of Winston Churchill, you have to see that. These old divisions in England, which are very deep, uh, and they're deep in America today, too, and they're historical and they still persist, uh, these old divisions get reflected in new guises under modern conditions. And so it was back then Anglicanism versus Protestantism versus Catholicism, it's uh, the hereditary aristocracy versus the people, all that. What is it today? It's the bureaucracy. It's a new kind of government that's unlimited. It's ordinary people up against it. It's a very large ruling class that's not as formal and doesn't have titles the way the one they that, that did back then, but they have it now. So, you know, that's, in other words, Churchill's, and he, he several times in this book, he talks about the continuities. He says that the voting patterns in modern England uh, follow the lines of the English Civil War. He often, you're absolutely right, he, do, he also points out that genius is also accompanied by flexibility, and he praises often Halifax and others who go back and forth between the opposing camps, uh, much as he crossed the line occasionally. What do you say? Anyone can rat. It takes genius to re-rat. I probably, right. butchered, I, I probably butchered the quote, but we'll be right back. Dr. Arn and I continue. Welcome back, America. In earlier episodes, Dr. Arn has continually reminded the audience something I have not done, which is that this is the era of Louis XIV, in which we are, are tracing uh, the history of the English-speaking people. Uh, he was born in 1643. William of Orange was born in 1650. John Churchill was born in 1650. These are the three great figures of the age. And uh, Churchill is careful to make sure that Louis XIV never gets pushed off the stage, Dr. Arn, because even as we have to keep our eye on China and Russia, England had to keep their eye on France throughout this period. That's right. And, you know, remember that uh, the reason that Churchill can write history uh, it, around these turning points. How can you identify what the turning points are? You have to have an idea where you hope it will go. And, and so if it's just a series of random events, 
you know, then you'll report the events and it'll be duller and ditchwater, and there won't be any theme to it. Sometimes, you know, some modern historians, sometimes their theme is, their theme is, it's all class and race, that's very common, or else it's all meaningless. People just do what they're, you know, one of my teachers in graduate school used to say, it's all a question of whose ox is being gored, right? Well, Churchill doesn't write like that. And yet he admits, of course, that people have interests and they serve them, and sometimes wrongly. And it's never, it's never right simply to ignore your interests, but they have to be qualified by something. And so, yeah, that's, in other words, this history elucidates the, the meaning of Britain as Churchill understood it, and I think it's the meaning. I think it's, he's correct about it. Well, he's covering 2,000 years, but he's doing so with a purpose. I don't think he wrote this for fun. It won the Nobel Prize for Literature because it's beautiful, but I think he wrote it for a purpose, Dr. Arn. Do you agree with me about that? Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, he, he, and you have to remember, uh, uh, let me remind myself, Churchill was a mortal man, right? And so the vigor and the precision and the elevation of the Marlboro and the world crisis those were possible to a young man. And, you know, this book is written partly by committee, and, uh, and he has a lot of help, and he's old, and he's the greatest man in the world yeah. by, by common consensus. And so the fire is there, but not in the same way. He's but do you think aware, aware that... Subsequent generations, I mean, this comes out in 1956, year I'm born, so it's been 66 years, I know that. Aware that in 66 years, people will be looking for the lessons of Churchill in the writings about Charles II and James II? Uh, uh, Churchill had a very strong sense of himself. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes for confident writing, and uh, you you say it's written by committee, because he had that vast staff of secretaries and historians around him. But he is the ultimate arbiter of what goes in and what gets phrased. Yeah, directly. and he, he does it. Like, you know, I think that there are, uh, one of the common criticisms of the last volume is that he writes too much about the Civil War. And, I, you know, he, he doesn't write well enough about Lincoln, in my opinion. Well, he toured the battlefields with Douglas Southall Freeman, who wrote Lee's Lieutenants, right? He was... In other words, uh, uh, what, what, uh, there's some book title that Harry Jaffa loved, uh, A Candid History of the War from the Southern Point of View. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say about that, 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 that Churchill is driving home in one volume how the American Revolution comes to be. And I always teach my con law students, they're not going to get the American Revolution unless they get the glorious revolution of 1688. Michael Barone has come to that conclusion as well. It's in, inevitably part of our story to understand what happened in 1688, which we'll come back to. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, the, you know, the petition of right. And see, Churchill does, uh, what is just, first of all, I don't want anybody to think that I just said that Churchill is a confederate. He very much is not. Oh, no. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, he, well, uh, after the break, I'll tell you how he collapses uh, the Declaration of Independence into a pro-British document. Okay, we'll be right back, America, because I haven't gotten to that trick yet. That's the next volume. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hilltail Dialogue continues with Dr. Larry Arn after this. 
Welcome back, America. We're going to come up to the glorious revolution here shortly, but in the last segment, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Dr. Arne brought up Churchill on the Declaration, uh, somehow becoming a, a glorious vindication of all things English. How so, Dr. Arne? Well, on the 4th of July, 1918, first time I know of, he, he, gives, he gives a 4th of July speech. And we're allies at the end of the First World War. And uh, he, he says, uh, by it, we lost an empire, but by learning its lessons, we have also preserved an empire. Uh, and then he says, he repeats this, by the way, in the very great Iron Curtain speech in 1946. The Declaration of Independence grew up on the banks of the Thames. He said the Petition of Right, the, uh, all, all of those great documents he mentions. Uh, Pym, the greatest parliamentarian of the of the resistance to Charles I, he says those are the people who brought into being and the language that comes up in the Declaration of Independence, and yeah. he is correct about that. And the Petition of Right and the Remonstrance. He also says on page 365, the Habeas Corpus Act, which is passed before Charles II abrogates Parliament. No Englishman, however great or humble, could be imprisoned for more than a few days without grounds being shown against him in an open court according to the settled law of the land. He likes to make sure everybody is reminded of those moments when Parliament stands up for liberty. That's it. That is really the theme of this book, is that liberty is the driving uh, organizing principle of all of English history, it will repair to liberty eventually. Yeah, that's it. And uh, one praise. Uh, it. Uh, he. He. Uh, you know, Churchill's. You know, there's a lot of tragedy in Churchill's life, and one of them is some of the things for which he hoped got voted out in 1945, and have not been fully eliminated. And the social safety net, which he helped to invent, doesn't operate according to the principles he did. In other words, we have big government today, and that's a problem. Do you know what is, this is not in my notes, but when Churchill loses in 45, it's not unlike when Washington triumphs after the Revolutionary War and goes home. Uh, Instantly clears out. And nobody instantly clears out in the uh, in the revolution, the glorious revolution. Everybody's ready to go to war, but nobody instantly clears out. That is the unfortunate failing of the 17th century in Great Britain. Yeah, and you know Churchill, uh, uh, Churchill took the view. Churchill, hey, he didn't retire. He was urged to retire, and he stayed. I fight for my corner, and I stay till the pub closes. He said, but uh, uh, he he believed his theory of Parliament might be worth stating here because Parliament is developing into the thing that it has become or did become at its peak. Uh, His theory was uh, governments last about five years. They get their authority from elections. In the first two years, they pass all the controversial things they campaigned on. The next two years are tidying up. They shouldn't do anything new departure. And the last year is getting ready for the election. And so the socialists won. They campaigned on nationalizing major industries. He said, we are going to argue against that, but we ought not and will not obstruct it. And that's much as he hated it, right? The people had ruled. And that means that Churchill all his life submitted himself to the consent of the governed. 
Now, I want to call up something I mentioned earlier from page 370 to get your comment on the Marquis of Halifax. Quote, he was the opponent alike of popery and of France. He was one of those rare beings in whom cool moderation and wit of judgment are combined with resolute action. He could defend a middle course with a constancy usually granted only to extremists. He could change from side to side or with or against the current without losing his force or the esteem in which he was held. He never shrank from the blasts of public frenzy and rose above all taunts and aspersions of time-serving. He gave the word trimmer an illustrious dissent. What do you make of that, Larry Arden? Well, that's, uh, that's very important. It's beautiful. And it's very important in Churchill. Halifax is a key figure in Churchill's very great essay, Consistency in Politics. Uh, Churchill believed that he was the most consistent politician, whereas he is commonly presented as somebody who blew with the wind. Mercurial. To his yeah. own advantage, right? And he, he, uh, he, Halifax is his ideal of that. Uh, Joseph Chamberlain, uh, Neville Chamberlain's father, Churchill's father's associate for free trade, adopts protection. And he basically, he's the one who's named in that essay as deeply inconsistent. And Halifax is the one who's deeply consistent, although he was shifting around all the time. Yeah, that is a lesson to everyone who's listening, who's driving around in Washington, D.C. It's okay to change your mind and to move because events move and uh, coalitions move and circumstances change. And Churchill is here for the man who moved with the events. And uh, and like he moved in the course of his career, you mentioned this earlier, from conservative to liberal back to conservative again, uh, but always believing in the same principles. Well, the sailing ship is a big image in consistency in politics. And he says, you know, if you're going to London, how you steer depends on which way the wind blows. Yeah. You're still going to London. And so yeah. that's, you know, that's that's the image. All right, let's, let's get to John Churchill before we run out of time, because we'll talk more about him uh, next week when we get to the wars with Louis XIV under Queen uh, William and Mary and, and Queen Anne. James II is the brother of Charles II. Charles II dies without legitimate issue. He's got a bastard son, Monmouth. And uh, Monmouth arrives in force. James II did one thing. He built up an army, 40,000 strong, 25,000 of which... He takes to destroy Monmouth, and he surely would have won, except for a guy named John Churchill. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, um, they cut off the head of the king. They bring his son back. Everything is settled, except not, because the same issues come up again, right? And James II seems to be uh, really steering toward Catholicism. And that's important on religious grounds, but it's also important on the ground of the independence of England. Uh, when James is deposed, uh, relatively peacefully, he flees to France. And then his son and his son's son, they're the pretenders that are in France forever, always there at the beck and call of Louis XIV in case he gets to invade England. And so people have a sense of that, and they've been through this drill once before, and so a bunch of important people, including John Churchill, the military one, right? And he was, he was a brilliant soldier. He was young when this first comes up, and he wasn't the senior military guy. But he com commanded some important troops. Uh, 
well-placed, and they didn't go fight where James II wanted them to go. So, yeah, he helped to deliver uh, the deposition of James and the invitation to William of Orange, who's married to Mary. Her daughter, she's the daughter of James I, right? And, uh, and they invite them back to come and be the king and queen. Because she is a reliably Protestant lady, married to the, the, the prince of the Protestants, William of Orange, who comes over and William and Mary, for whom we have a college uh, name, become the new kings and queen of England and succeeds them. But I got to ask you, because in fact, this will lead into the next segment. I always tell my law students that the glorious revolution of 1688 is not unremarked upon in the colonies. They are watching. Do you think that's a fair statement? Oh, sure, because the documents that come out of this are, you know, near to the Declaration of Independence. They're cited as authorities, and uh, and this, you know, and they in in the colonies in America, we read it uh, simply as the will of the people, uh, whereas it's not simply that in England, it's the will of the estates, right? Lords and the Commons and the people and the king and uh, but yeah it's uh, and the principles go far enough to justify revolution against a despotic king and a despotic king is somebody who doesn't operate under the law made under the influence the will of the governed in America that's all bald and pure right in Britain they don't get universal franchise until early in the 20th century and they don't get uh, the franchises universal male franchise universal male franchise just just like the united states we got no in the 1920s they got female too uh and and but you know uh, you get a, a beginning in the something like 1840 you get reforms which are often driven by the way by the tory party Yes. That, that widen and widen and widen the franchise. And then they clean up the rotten boroughs, which are boroughs where they basically become largely depopulated or, and they have a lot of representation and the Lord controls the votes. Uh, Churchill's father was first elected parliament as the member for Woodstock, which is where Blenheim Palace is, uh, where his... Uh, you know, the Dukes of Marlborough, and Randolph Churchill was the second son of the Duke of Marlborough, and that's why Churchill didn't get a title. Uh, But later, because he was a Tory Democrat, he ran for a constituency up in Birmingham. He wanted to be elected by the people. And that was, by the time of his career, which is in the late 19th century, that is a common thing. People think we have to represent the people. And, and it carries over to America effortlessly because it is indeed the history of the English-speaking people. One more segment coming up. I've got to pay homage to the seafaring folk of the West Counties when we come back. Don't go anywhere, America. The history of the English-speaking peoples continues. Thank you. 
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. We are concluding week number six in the history of the English-speaking people. And Dr. Ron, I have not given enough credit to Churchill throughout. He is, in the course of these two volumes that we have covered, tracing the exploration urge among the English, their mastery of the sea, and their, their breeding in the West Counties, a race of adventurers, which is integral to the future of the Great Britain. I mean, they are mastering the sea, and it's Drake and Walter Raleigh and all these people, and they're not, you know, I'm not going to hold them up as models of Christendom, but they certainly are models of leadership. Oh, yeah. They, uh, you know, the, uh, the great story of this age, you know, this volume is called The New World, is, you know, Portuguese and Spanish and Italian and British people, Start moving around, and you know, because it's you know, it's it's a fact. Same thing happened with Athens, right? Rome, Carthage, right? They were good at the sea, and that meant they could go anywhere, and they could take a lot of stuff with them. And so, the British get good at that, and then they start, you know, they they're the ones they didn't discover. First of all, people had known that the Earth was round for, you know ancient times, right? but they thought you could, you know, sail, sail west to get to the east, and that's what Columbus was looking for, and everybody, everybody was looking for, and, and what they found was a big continent, too, and we're here, right? And so, I mean, we weren't here then, but, uh, and so the British are the ones who approached that differently, that is to say... They sent families. Soon, I mean, first it was just adventurers, right? And but then, you know, they gave they they invented the joint stock company, uh, which was the precursor to the modern corporation, which is a wonderful way to assemble capital. And then they would, uh, the king would give title to some lands, which were largely unexplored. By the way, he didn't really even know what he was given title to. And then somebody would get up. Team of people and equip them and give them some ships, you know, Puritans and Pilgrims and all them, and they'd go over there and they'd settle, and you know that everybody expected a return, and that just turned to you know. And first, what they proceeded to do when they first got there was starve to death, but uh, after a while they found about how to scratch a living out of the land, and then they discovered tobacco grew really well, especially in Virginia. And now they've got a going concern, and there is a return. And so there's capital available for people to get a ship, which is not cheap, and provisions, and go over the water and found a colony, and they take the families with them. And by the time we come up to this restoration, there are 14,000 Englishmen on the united shore of the Atlantic because they've won New Amsterdam and turned into New York. They have got a toehold from Newfoundland down to the Floridas that is never going to be dislodged. That's right. Uh, Churchill makes a delicious point in the middle of all this. Uh, England was, you know, to a considerable extent settled by raiders from northern Europe. Danes and Vikings and Germans and Angles and Saxons, right? And what he says is, and then come the... 17th century, 16th and 17th century, and they get on their boats again and go to a new place. (laughs) (laughs) 
So he's aware. I mean, he's so aware. Uh, he t- I want people to understand. You do not get to America 1776 unless you come through English history. I always tell my students, you got to know the, the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, the English, and the Americans before you understand anything. And I want to close by, throughout this uh, symphony of history, there is a continual reminder of the common law, Larry Art. Just, it's got, you don't get the English unless you get the common law, and the English-speaking people take it everywhere. People, yeah, so the, the, in my opinion, the essential thing to understand about law is that law is general in its nature. And that means it applies to the great and the small alike. And that means it has to accomplish the feat of getting the mighty and powerful to obey just like the small and the weak. That's why soldiers have to behave themselves. That's why the FBI is not supposed to participate in partisan politics, right? And that achievement, right, that is the fundamental uh, necessity for justice. And so the common law is the building up of great structure of law. And just think of the phenomenon. It happens in courts. People come and plead, and they've got circumstances, and the judge decides. And he decides in, in light of what's been decided before, and his decision becomes part of a record that grows. And that's a precious thing. The record that grows is recorded in large part in the history of the English-speaking people. We will go to Volume 3 next week, Ch- Book 7, read ahead, get all the notes from hillsdale.edu. And if you've missed the first of these, six of these, go back and listen to them. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.